GTA Politics Unleashed came from uh, my recent foray into the political, uh, I guess, uh, public school trustee municipal elections. So this is going to be episode one. And I want to concentrate more on the local aspect because our area, Davenport, was pretty, uh, pretty much a hotbed for the old municipal election, which was really interesting. So this is where the episode one comes from. And today I thought, let me bring in someone who, from the first day I, I decided to be a public school candidate, trustee candidate, uh, you were the first person to call me. I was, you, you took me off guard. You, you actually called me. You actually made me think about why I'm actually doing this instead of just doing it and thinking later, which was uh, really nice. So I'm going to introduce Joe, uh, a local resident, a voter of Davenport, uh, a parent of a child with special needs, which of course, uh, of course uh, you, we both know this close to my heart as well, uh, an Ontario educator, which should give a really cool perspective of what we're doing today. And um, she's taken a career pause to deal with a chronic illness, a disability triggered by a COVID infection, which is also a really big hotbed issue. You know, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm under, um, underqualified to talk to you in some respects because you are, you are the topics of today. And this is really cool actually, but I hope uh, you'll help me by uh, giving me such amazing information. Um, and she acquired this during the 2020 school year, right in the middle of the COVID pandemic craziness. So I don't want to harp on the infection part of it and all that stuff. I don't want to, I want to talk about the positive, but also I want to talk about some information too. Okay. So the first thing I want to talk about, which I think is a hotbed of, uh, right now, and actually might even come back is the mask mandate. Yes. What are your opinions on the mask mandate? What do you think about bringing them back into the school? So, I mean, as a, an immune compromised person, because I have some autoimmunity problems thanks to COVID and then also uh, because I'm on an immune suppressant for uh, ankylosing spondylitis, which is a hereditary autoimmune disease that I have. Um, it's, it's, a it's a tricky one for me because I definitely understand why people are hesitant to go backwards. From a psychological standpoint, I completely understand that. And I also think that we've probably evolved a lot in our understanding of how COVID spreads and what it can do to your body uh, versus what we understood when masks first were mandated. So I see this debate as almost, uh, Nor so Nora Loretto and Sandy, I can't remember her last name all of a sudden, brain fog's still a problem for me. Uh -huh. <laughs> She, uh, oh. So they brought a podcast called Nora and Sandy Talk Politics or Sandy and Nora Talk Politics. And they made a good point about mask mandates is that it's kind of a distraction because you get these two factions, like people who are like, we must have a mask mandate. And then people who are like, never again, masks don't work. And it's just like, we're not getting anywhere. And I know you and I've talked about this where it's like, geez, can we just kind of like, can we talk past the, the two-sided nature of this and actually like, then find a solution that we can all kind of agree on and move forward together versus getting stuck. It's a bit of a distraction. So well, wasn't that always the point though? Wasn't it always to, to find the solution that would make her, but also protect everybody too. I think we've lost that. Like, you know what? I was visiting, I was visiting my, uh, I'm going to go visit my aunt at an old age home. They want a test and they want my mask on. 
to go visit my aunt. So what is the problem there? Is someone going to say no because I don't believe in masks anymore? Well, that's it, right? Because there's two, there's sort of, I, I feel like the two sides get a little entrenched, right? Because there's, there's the people who are making a big deal out of something that's really not, like you're putting on a mask to go into a place where there's a lot of vulnerable people. I would like to believe most humans can go, yes, that makes sense. I would like to believe that maybe after COVID, for example, you know, my, my grandmother, my nonna is in a, an LTC. You know, I know for me personally, forever, if I'm going to visit her and I'm maybe not feeling well or my kid's been sick or I've been in a classroom with sick children, I'm going to be putting on a mask when I go in there, even when COVID's over, because now I'm like, oh, this is a simple, like you said, it's a simple thing I can do. Uh, but when it comes to, I, I, and I think a lot of people are like, it would be nice if people could do that without the government telling them they have to, but we know that now we're kind of beyond that. So for me, I want to see like the whole, the whole thing. So I like the, the idea of, of having more accessible testing in general. I know I saw in the States, some people have home kits that test now for RSV and flu and COVID. And I was like, this is great. Why don't we have this? Like, again, we should have had this before. So as a, as a parent of a small child who also has asthma, you know, it would give me reassurance to have access to that. And then also, um, the clean air thing is a big thing for me for schools. I think, you know, the littlest ones with masking, the problem with them masking is, you know, we know they're not doing it uh, effectively. So I feel like it's the adults that need to be the responsible parties and we need to be the ones masking where it makes sense. So like my husband and I were speaking about this last night because uh, he's like, you can't do this podcast. You're going to be making people mad. And I said, but that's not the point. I think the point is to talk, to find a solution, right? So simple solution, you're going to a busy, crowded supermarket before the holidays and getting all your holiday meal stuff, put on your mask. It's just, it's just going to make life a little bit easier probably for you. Cause now you're not trying to cook your holiday meal and coming down with the flu at the same time. To me, it's common sense. Uh, but I think that the discussion ends up devolving into a distraction like I said, I think workplaces and schools, clean air seems to me to be the other simple solution that unfortunately, like as individuals, we don't have access to. The mask is the thing I can do, but I want to see people really pushing for clean air in schools and workplaces uh, and better working conditions in terms of, you know, when we were hearing from people working in factories and uh, I lived, we used to live in the junction really close to the meat processing facilities. I know Gee, there were kids yeah. right there the Amazon facilities, like, you know, I think that we should be looking at how do we keep those people safe in general from illness, not just during COVID, but beyond. And, and what do we need to do besides masking? Besides, I mean, I know in certain, certain industries, they're masking anyways, but it seems to me like there is a lot of stuff that we could do that we're not doing. And we're just like, I guess we got to put on our masks again because nobody else is doing anything. I just feel like the other side is very hypocritical. I just, you know, if you had someone that was dealing with your food, would you not want them to have a mask on? So why is your health not not a, an option as well? Uh, and I don't know. I, I the this uh, this past election has has brought me to Twitter. I really I tweeted once before then. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'll tell you something, I don't know if it's good or bad, to be honest with you, I really don't, because everyone has this, I, I, I had somebody tell me that to lose 100 people, 200 people in the big scheme of things to get back to normal was okay. And I'm just sitting there going, are you serious? Like, okay, get 100 people. You know what, every parent I talk to, even the, the lady that helps me with my other podcast, 
um, and she and she's been sick with twins, and one goes down, the other goes down, and RSV and not having any Tylenol and and going actually physically getting her her mother to go to the states to get Tylenol and it's crazy and more and more kids are staying home now too you notice from the last three years to now it's crazy I don't I don't get it I I, I don't understand and and I I still won't but that said you know what maybe I have a little bit of a you know I don't wear a mask anymore unless I really have to and or I feel like I'm protecting somebody. Or not, you know. But if I once I feel sick, then of course I'll put it on. But uh, but we don't know who's sick and not sick, you know. I don't know. It's it's an interesting situation with the masks. Uh, but in schools, they should be back, shouldn't they? I definitely think that the adults should be wearing them because I think that's an easy one. Uh, I know when I was talking to my pediatrician about my son and saying, you know, should because my son's about to turn four and he's in JK and I said you know should he be wearing a mask and he's like listen this kid's going to be touching his face he's he's little what you want is the older kids and the adults so so we're kind of trying to protect those little ones and that's the approach the school's taking too which I appreciate is they're they're trying to make sure the people who can mask effectively are doing so and then uh doing everything else we can because that's where I feel as the parent of a small child uh especially one who has you know a little bit of issues that are some are just his age and some is some developmental stuff with um, impulse control and he is also very smart and so he keeps us on his toes he's always questioning every rule right <laughs> so uh you know looking at at his situation i go you know he's very vulnerable in multiple ways i'm very vulnerable so i'm always masking just because i'm I'm vulnerable. I think I went somewhere one yesterday for like 10 minutes without a mask on and, and I felt really uncomfortable, honestly. Uh, but, you know, for us, it's a, it's a very, we're, we're those one or 200 people. So when people say that, it makes me a little bit crazy. <laughs> no, it's like, and it's true. It's, right? and, so. and you're going through it now. And, you know, 23 years ago, I went through it with my son who's autistic and I don't know what I would be doing now. I honestly don't know how how nervous I would be taking him to school, bringing him to school, going through this whole process. It, it was already difficult just to deal with the with the challenges. Now to deal with this uh, the last two three years is just inconceivable. I, I I'm almost now he has no problem wearing a mask, and now but the impulses were there when he was four or five six years old. Would he have kept it on? Would he even have? You know, would we be losing one every two minutes and have to buy the whole pack just for a day? You know, that, that was always the, the worry. Like, uh, I had two of everything growing up with him. So, <laughs> and you well, probably did that. As you know, too, right? You literally need two of everything, right? When, when you have a child who is highly sensitive for one reason or another to routine and change, uh, we have doubles, identical doubles of everything, right? So that's, I think, also because we're seeing that side of it of the... You know, a lot of people like to talk on Twitter about children's mental health with regards to school closures and stuff. And I, and I actually do agree that, that children should be in school, but I think they need to be kept safe when they're in school, which is what we weren't seeing happening. Um, but for my child, especially, I think it's um, it's I, I know for him the not knowing where do I need a mask and where do I, I not and, and which mask am I going to wear and finding the one that isn't going to make him feel really uncomfortable, that that's all a huge challenge. And I guess I would like to see people who are well, people who are capable 
and especially those who are who are deciding to maybe go out more like I haven't been to see a show I haven't been to the theater I haven't been to a movie I haven't been to a concert nothing um I haven't had very much fun in this time um that the folks that are engaging with those things I'd love to see them putting on a mask just just as a, a recognition that you know they're able to they're able to go out they're able to participate just please do so safely especially ahead of the holidays when you're going to maybe see your vulnerable family members because you you don't know i'm very open about my health situation but a lot of people are not comfortable so you really don't know who's vulnerable you really don't and some of us don't know we're vulnerable until we get something until we get sick and then yeah and then all of a sudden it becomes an issue and becomes something you look at and you deal with properly but that, that brings me to another point. Do you, what do you feel about people that don't get uh, the shot, get the vaccine? Aren't they putting it, so they put a mask on, but they're not vaccinated and, and, and they're, they're carriers too, in some respect. Well, in during the COVID real COVID uh, two, three years, that was always, you know, we were always worried about, okay, so you're not protecting anyone else. Now, I don't know if people worry about it as much, but it's because of that herd, that herd mentality where the vaccine basically under control there's not as many COVID cases but still you know what i i know people that have never got it <laughs> and not got one and i got four <laughs> yeah yeah i've got five so oh my goodness because um, i because i was i was one of the first people to get it because of this immune suppressant yeah. drug come on um i think that the for me it's interesting because i never thought about this before covid I, I actually, there was a little bit of it on my radar as an educator and my husband and I hadn't started our family yet, but we knew this was something we wanted to do um, because it used to be uh, that I would be sending packets home once a year for kids who didn't have their vaccines updated. Uh, so they'd hit a point in the year where it's like, okay, you can't come back till you have your whatever the course of vaccines was. And we all just took that for granted as like, yeah, this is what we do to protect each other. This is part of being in a society. This is part of accessing public institutions. And there really wasn't, for most of my career, there was no pushback there. And uh, I'm always very supportive of like making sure the families and the kids have everything they need and they know where to go to get what they got to do to get back or get their letter from their doctor if they can't get it. Because I also have family members who can't get certain vaccines because for certain immune, like autoimmune right. issues, can't get certain types of vaccines. So, um, but it's interesting because like now it's like this big thing where it's like, we were doing this already. This isn't new. We were always doing this, but it became a political flashpoint. For, for schools, I think initially I thought, yeah, you know, you should have your COVID vaccine to, to be in school. I think I have a little bit more compassion now uh, after going through my own health issues for people who have real severe medical anxiety. Like I know a few folks They've gone through some medical traumas in this time and they're scared, like legitimately scared. You know, they're not, you're not conspiracy theorists. They're not online. They're not, they're not um, exposed to any of that. They just are actually afraid. So again, my, my thing is, well, who has the power to help people with this fear and why aren't they doing what they need to do? And, you know, why do they have this fear? I think it comes back to the fact that our health system is really underfunded. And so people are afraid that if, something happened to them after a vaccine, you know, they're going to end up ironically in the situation I'm in because I got sick pre-vaccine, right? So I got long COVID before vaccines were available. Most of the people I know in the long COVID groups who've been sick for two years or more, they're all the OG long haulers, which means we got sick mm -hmm. in the first wave before the vaccines. And the people who had vaccines in the groups were watching them recover while we're not. So that's... 
Let me throw a wrench into this though and give you a little thought. So you have a, a, a child on um with with issues. Imagine 23, 24, 25 years ago where when you have an autistic child and they thought the vaccines are what caused it. <laughs> and you know what? We had long enough time away from then where we didn't think about it as much. But my wife and I looked at each other and go, you know what? It, it's an issue. Like did that vaccine, that because I, I remember when my son took the, the first vaccine at a year and a half old, it went in, the needle went in and all of a sudden it does a cry. It all of a sudden a quiet cry and then a screaming for like an hour. And, you know, we, it was our first kid, our only kid. We, we didn't know anything different. And then we thought, okay, after a year later, we got the diagnosis, like two and a half. And it's like, all of a sudden, did it cause it? Did the vaccine, you know, and then, you know, but that, that was the thing, right? So, you know, everybody in my family, everyone got vaccine, but then all of a sudden it was like, okay, so this COVID thing, what is it going to cause? And, 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 and that's people's, you know, their conspiracy theory about the vaccines, but but that was my fear and you know it's a it, it was a genuine fear because we you know what even though it's been disproven to a certain respect but still when well, you don't have a, a real cause for what you know the autism spectrum and how it's caused then you don't really know exactly what really caused it so that's my thought about it anyway i don't know it, you could trace it to something happened uh, or uh, genetics or probably but yeah, this is actually an interesting thing. There's a, I just started listening. I have a friend who's uh, legally blind. She had uh, a non-age related macular degeneration. She started going blind when we were 11 or 12 years old. And now she's, she's legally blind. She has a little bit of sight, but you know, she can't uh, drive and she's, she can't work. She actually has a master's degree in, in child psychology and she has a teaching degree. And she sent me um, a podcast from, it was CBC, I think ideas that series called The Myth of Normal, and it talks about the genetics behind neurodiversity. ASD, I have ADHD, so ADHD and ASD seem to run in my family, um, and that's why it's on our radar for my son. Um, but there's, you know, they were talking about anthropologically, sociologically, the, the background of, you know, people who think differently and whose brains are, are structured differently had actually a real advantage to offer to the survival of the human species. But nowadays, because society works in a, the particular way that it works, it's seen as a deficit. So I think, I again, I come back to the systems always. It's like, well, you know, I know when my son, when we started going through this assessment process, it's, they're looking at it as a deficit. And I'm going, well, I see this child at home and I see, I'm sure you went through this, like all of the amazing things he's capable of that other children his age can't do and aren't capable of. And I'm saying, you know, what is it about the system that we are working in, that we're living in, that we're learning in, that's telling us there's something wrong with our brains, right? And I felt that too, as, an, as a child with ADHD. And now as a teacher, I love working with neurodiverse students because our brains are kind of wired in a similar way um, and that there are advantages there. So I think trying to say like what caused it or attributed to something is suggesting it's a disease when increasingly it seems like it's just it's like a part of biodiversity you know we've got different skin color we've got different hair color uh we all have different strengths and, and talents physically and cognitively it's the same thing it's yeah, yeah only a parent of a child with it can really understand a lot of that it's interesting but 
I could, we could spend all day talking about that, actually. <laughs> you know, my wife and I, especially, you know what? But at the end of the day, I I always thought when, when my son was young, I put the Italian feelings into me. I said to myself, will he ever get married? Will he ever have kids? Will he ever do all this? And at the end of the day, someone told me, um, and my wife actually told me many times too, it's what makes us happy doesn't make him happy. Right. And he is the happiest kid in the world. You know what? And that's all that matters. And, you know, that's all you can do as a parent, right? And all you can do as a parent and make sure they're happy. Like he's happier than I ever will be. And you know what? He doesn't hold a grudge the next day, whatever happened before is fit. We're thinking about it for years and years and years and, and causes us issues where if something happened bad yesterday to the, the next day, he's absolutely fine. And that's a trait that I wish I had. <laughs> Wait, you're telling me your son is an Italian who doesn't hold grudges? Yeah, wow. you know what? That's, that's impressive. That's, that's actually well. Amazing. You you can't. You know what? <laughs> My wife hates me when I do this, but it's like when it's like okay, you can't talk to that uncle. We don't talk to that uncle. We don't talk to that one over there. We don't talk to this person. And my wife, my my son's looking at me like, and he wants to talk to. He wants to talk. To, he wants to say hello to. He wants to do everything. And we're like, no, I'm just kidding. It happened once, but you know what? He doesn't understand that stuff. And and that uncle's back to you know what? He just wants to he wants to experience it and i think our, our society is not necessarily you know what i'm talking to you and you're, you're you know you remind me a little bit of a lot of my wife my wife is very smart very intellectual um you know university and and i'm you know i, I went to college i have a couple of college diplomas i've done very well for myself but at the end of the day um people look at their first impression of people if i said hello to you and they'll think oh this person may be smart maybe not smart right but but you know what the you don't know my dad used to always say to me that person that has that one pair of pants that he's been wearing all week who cares he could be the the richest person in the world he could be the smartest person in the world you know what you don't judge people on on their your first talk your first their first word because you don't know what their situation is you don't know what their life is when my a lot of people say to my son now, you know what, I, I never noticed. But then you start talking to him when it gets into a social atmosphere and then you realize it. So it's it's interesting that way. Um, I'm going to switch gears because I wanted to talk to you about something that actually that's, um, so I ran for school trustee. And of yeah. course, that's what that drove you to think. But there's a school just outside of our district that is having all the issues. And my son went to that school, George Harvey which is York Memorial now. If you had a kid in that school, how would you feel right now? Because I would have been, my, my son went five years. He took a, a, a victory lap in grade 12 to be, more, to be more comfortable. And I would be dying right now if I had a kid in that school with fight clubs and uh, drugs. And this, that wasn't like this actually up until two years ago, three years ago, it was not like this. But what stops a school when things, things like that happen? And, and the fear of that. I don't know, what's your, uh, I, I know it's, uh, <laughs> it's a little bit of a- The big question. I mean, I know for me, uh, I, so I, I have uh, a couple of friends actually. So um, I work in Maple usually, and a couple of my friends from Maple, they grew up around here. And one of them went to George, no, she didn't go to George Harvey. She went somewhere else, but th that was her local school. And I met a couple of other people around the area that went there. Um, I think like, I, I know I've worked at schools that, that had a reputation 
And for the most part, as, as an insider, I go, you know, yes, there's some, there definitely I'm hearing a lot of, a lot more of teachers, my friends reporting that the behaviors right now are really severe everywhere. The children, especially the teenagers are really struggling to figure out how to positively socialize with one another and how to be in an institution again and how to, um, how to deal with like really what's been a traumatic couple of years for them during a very formative time. And I think that that's what we're seeing a lot of in the behaviors in the schools. Um, but I also know from my own experience working with some of these students uh, that are, we call like in risk, um, students who are traditionally marginalized, that's, those are the students that I, I feel I, I typically will work best with in the sense of what they need more than anything is to be seen and to be acknowledged and to be valued for what they offer, just like everybody else. And their system is not designed to offer that. So I think from a, from a local school's perspective, what we really need is to examine, you know, what, what are the resources within the building? Like, I don't want to see, I don't want to see another itinerant position. And I know people who do this itinerant work where they go from school to school and, and they do fantastic work. But I want to see a lot more uh, social workers, psychologists uh, that actually are connected to the community that are in, in the school buildings that can help these children to find a pathway for themselves out of the institution um, that is positive, but also honors who they are and what their values are. So instead of, I don't know, like for me, it was always we were just told to go to university and that, that was it. That was the only opportunity that was seen as viable even though reality is not like most of my family they did not my most of my cousins did not go to university and they're doing very well for themselves they work in the trades or uh they work in one of one of them's uh, officer like they're in all we're in all different spheres of society um but it's like how do you connect that kid who doesn't see an, an avenue for success an avenue for self-actualization to those opportunities when they've been out of school for two years um, who knows what type of support they've been getting in that time. And they're splintered too. They're, they're really splintered right now as well, because there's been the, there's been the walk off of the, of the, of the assistance. And there's not really been any consistency in the last two or three years either. Really. They haven't been back to school on a regular basis. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because those are the support staff that we need more of, right? Like I know personally when we have EAs in a classroom where I, I typically get a lot of students with uh, special needs, I say there's the same needs as everybody else. It's just a different way that they need them met maybe. Learn, right? yeah. yeah, so we need more. We definitely, I can say, I benefit when there's an EA in my room when I have several children who have some additional needs because they have an extra set of eyes to, and we can collaborate and work together. Same thing with special ed, like same thing with, like I said, the social, so as some people don't know, like EAs are in that union as are in many boards, the social workers and the psychologists are in that same union. And uh, we're losing EAs, we're losing um, positions that are either being cut by the board or people are walking away going like, listen, you know, I have, I have a college diploma and I have experience that I can transfer to, I've experienced that nobody else has, right? That I could transfer to lots of other places why should I stay here and, and work for a wage that I can't live on, especially in the city, especially now this neighborhood's getting, even with the housing market, it's still very unaffordable. You know, that to me, it's all one. So the kids are suffering, yes, but not just from the walkout, but from the, the reasons behind the walkout, you know? No, for sure. And, and it's funny because um, you brought a point up with um, 
with support outside of the school. Um, when when my son was in school, the only support we got, because the school really didn't know what to deal with it, is Holland Blurview brought a psychologist in to create a planning board for, for my son. Because I guess 20 years, 23 years ago, it wasn't as like now, now you probably could do one for your classroom and understand that process. But back then, Holland Blurview actually walked into our classroom, into his, my son's classroom, set it all up, and the kids were all helping him and everything. And he had a planning board for the whole day at lunch, breakfast, lunch, and uh, his classes, and he knew where to go. And that planned his whole three or four years. But I don't know if that's happening right now. I don't think there's that much detail support. I don't know. Uh, you tell me. I definitely know like the the people who have that expertise are the social workers and the psychologists and the EAs because that's really what they're trained on teachers we end up being a jack of all trades we also end up like in in elementary they end up being switched from grade to grade year over year in high school we end up getting switched into courses we've never been trained in or taught before so I think that like, as much as I could do I do a lot of uh, what we call universal design so stuff that is great for students on the spectrum for example but it helps, it can help any student really that might need that little bit of extra reminder and structure. So the training that I went through and that I've I've kept up with my training because it's what I'm passionate about, uh, really does focus on a lot of that stuff. It's very different from how it used to be. But still the people that have the expertise are those people with, that that's what they do all day long. And then they also, like I know, you know, we'll have students who it's their, it's the school psychologist if you're lucky to have one, or if it's it's the EA that works with them across disciplines, across classes, and over multiple years. That also has the insight into what that student needs for particular scenarios. That the classroom teacher, we could have all the training, all the knowledge, all the professional development in the world. At the end of the day, I'm only with that child for 90 minutes a day for uh, about five months, and. Even if I do outreach, even if I do extracurriculars, even if I offer extra help, my time with that child is still quite limited. So versus the, the specialist who's tracking that child's needs over several years throughout the day, throughout the year, they have a completely different set of skills and insight into helping that individual child where I have more general knowledge. That makes and sense. that's why it makes it so scary. And I remember going from year to year where we'd get there the day of school and basically you're not sure whether the EA was there <laughs> and the IAP would be two weeks, three weeks later. And we'd be like, ah, is it going to be here? Or we're not sure. And they're not even sure because they don't even know what day to day. It's a, that's a topic we could talk about forever. It's uh, oh, special ed is its whole thing, right? Because, uh, you know, the people making the IEPs for better or worse, those are the certs, special education resource teachers, right? For better or worse, they're also teaching. Uh, their own classes so it's not like they're dedicated that that's all they do all day long so yeah it creates a backlog um, I've worked with I've been a cert myself um, and I've worked with certs who are really hands-on but they're in order to be so hands-on in the classroom and going from class to class with their what we call caseload their students that they track and they they help they're 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 putting in a lot of extra hours to do that work like they're pulling 80 hour weeks like people just people don't realize how strained the system is and how much it's the people the individuals in the system that are, are choosing to support it prop it up and at a certain point you know we're going to reach a breaking point where people just can't do that anymore so it's uh and then that's that cert maybe is with that kid for the year but then the staffing gets reshuffled because we never have enough people we never get enough staffing so 
the next year their cert could be somebody else. And it's really the EA. The EA is the one that might be more consistent. I have a very close friend who's an EA. And so she will work with a kid from grade nine to grade 12. She knows that kid and what they need. And uh, the certs do the best they can, but they're still teaching and they're still, they, their attention is very, very divided. And they're not in that consistent role year over year. And for, for a child like that, consistency is... Everything. <laughs> it's everything to it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can, you know, you the the behavior needs. For example, I I I I don't know. I can't speak to that. I I know if if children were getting the right interventions when they're in JK SK grade one, um, we might not see the same things in high schools that we're seeing now. You know, and that's not to blame the individuals doing the work. It's the system has not valued those children at that age. We only look at them when they're about to enter the the real world. And we go, oh, what's wrong with them? And it's like, you know, this started, this started 10 years ago, right? But the resources were never there. Like even I dealt, we dealt with it where at five years old, you're basically not a, not a, but the, the waiting lists were, were five years. And, you know, he got, he got the diagnosed at two and a half and you know what, we never, uh, parents have to have, and that's the other thing too. The, uh, we took an initiative to, to take control of how our son was going to be raised, how our son was going to deal with this. And, you know, my wife was home a lot more than I was and then she did an amazing job. But that said, we don't have that same family unit uh, that we used to all the time. And that's where things happen, right? It's all, it's all connected too. Like if you look at, you know, EAs, for example, they're working two, three jobs, right? We know there's a lot of people in our society that are in that situation, right? And a lot of people in, in our neighborhood that are in that situation where they need just to keep up with the same lifestyle they've always had. They, they're they they're running out of money and they need to work more and more. And some people, maybe they, you know, I mean, I, I think about my grandparents, right? Um, they didn't speak English. They didn't know how to navigate the systems here. I mean, they only went to school until they were, you know, I think they all stopped school by the age of 10. So they, they really didn't have that. Like we're, we're privileged in that we've had that, that insight and that experience. Um, and I think about newcomers, I think about people who are working around the clock to make ends meet just to, to keep their family you know, clothed and fed. How are they supposed to navigate the system now if they have a child who needs more than the support that is readily available? And then the government just wants to, well, somewhat throw a little bit of money at them but then at the end of the day it's still not enough never is enough yeah never. and i think again people who don't have a child with special needs they don't realize that you know that that it's great 200 dollars. thank you very much like i definitely can use that but that's that's half of one therapy session <laughs> you know if you don't have private insurance and a lot of people don't so no, no, uh, community and social services, uh, children uh, helped us a lot with uh, with the liaisons in the summer. They would take them out and we would we would be able to get some of that money back or else, you know what, he wouldn't be, we didn't even have the time to take him out half the time because we were both working, at, you know, seven days a week. It was crazy. And, you know, Anona could help out for a certain amount of time, but then at the end of the day, I, I want to touch about one more thing and then I'll let you go and thank you so much, of course. Uh, and that is that... Um, the election. Don't worry, I won't ask you who you voted for. Okay, good. I was worried about that. I, I like, won't ask you. I promise you. I, know, yeah, I, I know, know you didn't vote for me, but it's okay. It's okay. I know you didn't vote for me. Um, that said, um, and I'm just going to tell you what I observed because our Ward 9 Davenport was a real hotbed. Um, I think 
Um, now we had the counselor uh, who won, Miss um, Brava, and we had um, uh, Alexis Dawson, the public school trustee, which is she's a very lovely lady, and she was very. You know what? I I, I remember when I first uh, signed up to do uh, to be a candidate for the trustee. I like to assess what I was going against and she, her resume and she was, she was the person for the job though. There was no two ways about it. Um, but do you think that politics should have been involved in this election as much as it was? Because I'll tell you something, I got the sense that it was very, in our writing, and, and I think that the tide has turned and Merritt Styles, who's our MP, uh, done a great job, but she's very NDP. And the NDP, now, if you're an NDP person, I understand, you know, and I, I have been too. It's an NDP writing in a lot of respects. Um, but that said, is politics for a trustee? Because she's in the same office as Brava, who's basically across the street from Merritt Styles, and they're all working together in a, in a, in, a, in a riding that is NDP and that is being run now the great grassroots way of, of, of getting people into the NDP party and it was a great election for them and, and a great springboard but do you think a trustee should be affiliated with a political party how about I throw that question at you uh, I was thinking yeah I was thinking about that because I figured we'd probably talk about that I think with when it comes to local politics, the problem is that there isn't the same amount of resources for people to get their name up. As you know, you <laughs> get your name out there, you know, get get some recognition for people to get to know you and why you're running. And that's why I called you because I was like, oh, this is just like a person in my neighborhood. This is yeah, great. This is what we need, right? Um, so on the one hand, you know, the party politics it lends a little bit of um, support in terms of you know, getting your name out there, getting recognition. But then I think it kind of, it can create an uneven playing field, right? For more independent people, because I know what I would personally love to see more of. And I don't know if that this will ever happen in a city of this size, where there's so much at stake in terms of every development and everything like that. Um, but I would love to see things really being more grassroots and, and not being affiliated with a, a particular party. Because again, I think that there, there's some entrenched divisiveness. Now, mind you, I think what we've seen in Toronto with regards to those NDP supported candidates is great because one of the things that they've come under fire for is for being as much of an old boys club as any other party. And I think that that's valid because, you know, if you have ton of your supporters don't look like the people who are uh, who, who are asking for your vote to represent you and they're not taking your problems seriously and more importantly your suggested solutions especially for something like the NDP which is really supposed to be like our labor party right you're supposed to be listening to the working class people uh, and uh, working in their best interest ideally right um, I think you know it's become a bit of an establishment which is good because it means in the one sense they're becoming more popular, but then on the other side, it comes with all the same I think, problems. I think, I, and what I'm trying to get to, I think is that it lends itself to people really tuning them out because they think they're a part of a party. They think they're part of, you know what I mean? Because you see, uh, I, and I'm gonna name, uh, because uh, Mr. Simon Vogel and Mr. Steven Lecca will be on my next episode together clashing with each other because they have different views but they're both 
but uh, I know Mr. Vogel, and 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 uh, he is very non. He doesn't like the progressive NDP party. I know he doesn't. I don't think he does, and I'm going to talk to him about that too. But he kind of tuned them out. He thinks, okay, you know what? I just I don't really want to 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 deal with them because they're part of the NDP and they have the NDP backing. I'm we're in a, a district where Julie Dershowitz is our MPP. Uh, and, and you know what? But other than the fact that I think she made a mistake at the end by um, by actually endorsing somebody right at the end, she did for Mr. Gonzalez. She should. She was not involved, and she stayed quiet. And and she barely beat uh, Miss Brava in the last election. She like eighty six votes or something like that. But that yeah, said, she kept. She kept. Yeah, she kept very quiet, and she let it happen. But I just. I don't know. I just get that feeling with the with I and my wife and I, you know, my wife is very, you know, because she she saw the the, uh, the women and and she she like you said, the grassroots, she saw that and she saw that really working and she she liked that feeling. And I just I play the double. I like to play the double advocate with everybody. I'm Italian. You know, I have that, that said opinion. But that said, I just I felt that was the only thing that bothered me. It was the it was the why am I being involved in. So should I say I'm liberal to to change someone's vote? No, I I don't want to say I'm liberal. I, I'm not going to vote for a party. Look, everybody in the city voted for Ford, and they all hate him. You know, but I but I, is that the reality? The reality is, why did he get a majority? Like, I'm sorry, guys, you have no reason to talk if you're not gonna if you're not gonna come up and, and not vote for him. So, yeah, I think I mean, uh, that's the provincial situation is a whole other like there's so much that needs to change, I think, in terms of of the provincial politics, too. But locally, yeah, like, I, I mean, in a perfect world, I want to see neighbors actually being able to have these conversations without worrying about the party politics and the allegiances and stepping on each other's toes. Like, I know my my neighborhood, my street is pretty pretty good like everybody talks to each other about these things and um nobody takes it personally if people disagree on something um but i think that's that local conversation is something that we really need to have more of because uh like i said it, it is primarily still a working class neighborhood um and you know i don't think any party is is doing necessarily the best they could do to represent people who live in our neighborhood and I think that for local, I don't think the party affiliations necessarily help other than, you know, they, they do give a bit of an advantage. I like, I understand why you want to affiliate so you could get, you could get the nice little card with your face and your name and you have canvassers and you have all of that. You know, it's like, it's like turnkey, right? Like you just walk in and it's all there for you. But at the same time, I, I don't know that that's where we're going to find local solutions because then they're tied to a party line. And then, yeah, you're losing people, right? Because, you know, the person across the street from you might have the same values, the same beliefs, and the same the same things they want to see out of their local school, for example, um, or out of their, their local city councillor. But, you know, they're, they're blue all the way, and I'm orange all the way, and the neighbor's red all the way. And it just, again, it becomes a distraction versus, like, you know what? Maybe if we started here on this street between these three individuals, put whatever we think about each other aside and go actually we probably agree on a whole lot more than we disagree on and how do we make progress there 
and I know that's going to make me unpopular with uh, some people probably on Twitter oh. to say that, but I, I, I do think that's where the future is in terms of local politics and organizing and really getting people what they need. So people are not like constantly living on the edge and worried about, you know, the schools and the violence and losing their house. And like, we got to get out of that mentality because to me, and that that's where we're going to fix it. This is the only way yeah. we're going to really fix it is from the start. And, and you know, talk I've, to your neighbors. <laughs> and it's funny, one one neighbor, one neighbor, I one neighbor donated to my campaign, and the other neighbor had a Brava and Dawson sign right next door to me. You know what? It doesn't change anything. At the, at the end of the day, you know what? Everyone's got an opinion. Everyone's got a value with what they need to have done. But hey, I have a little bit more. You know, that's why it's called. I'm trying to call it GTA politics. I want to talk a little bit of politics, of course. But I want to thank you so much. It was fun, and I'm yeah, hoping, I'm, I'm hoping one day. Uh, when it actually, ha I have a little bit more under my belt, I'll be able to talk to you about uh, even more important things that are going on. Yeah, sure. That would be great. Special education and local politics, man. I think that's the way to go too with the trustees. That's that's what we got to you know what? And, and, and like I, I sent a message to Alexis uh, a week or so ago. I said, uh, it's uh, you had a real challenging situation. <laughs> you know what I mean? He got thrown into the fire. And you know what? Uh, I'm I, I and she's she's up for the challenge. I know that much. And she's very qualified, which is which is great. But geez, you don't get qualified for all the stuff that's going on right now, man. That's just a whole different. <laughs> That's a whole different ballgame. But again, thank you very much for your time. Thank and you, I appreciate it, appreciate it, appreciate it, appreciate it. Okay. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.